So, hello and welcome to the Forward Unto Dawn podcast. This is episode 15, and I'm David Fuchs, and I'm joined as usual by Danny. Hello. And Isaac. Hello. So today we're going to talk about a couple of things, primarily Halo Broken Circle, the novel by John Shirley that came out November 4th. Also going on right now is the episodic release of Halo Nightfall, but since that's kind of halfway through this point, we're going to save all our comments, criticisms, etc. until it finally wraps up. Uh, So starting with Halo Broken Circle, I guess, before we get into spoiler territory, etc., what did you guys think of the book overall? Um, I liked it. It uh, it had an interesting structure for a Halo book. You know, it was kind of broken in two, uh, so that you almost get two different reading experiences after you reach the halfway point. And it's a new author, so it's good to get a new voice in the Halo universe. And it's exploring a a time in Halo's fiction that needed a lot of expanding. I think so. It was good overall. I can actually I, I really enjoyed it. It was a it was a setting that did need a little bit more well, it didn't need exploration, but I appreciated it. And uh I think it tied in nicely with the current meta state of of Halo in terms of releases and whatnot, so it, it provided some nice background color. Yeah, I I was one of those people who initially i really didn't understand why they were doing this book and like well we've already kind of gotten the covenant stuff before and like learned a lot about that in contact harvest so i wasn't really sure where they were going but they definitely uh put a lot in here about the san Shayun, which we hadn't really gotten a lot of and then a bit more about the sangeli who mostly gotten in a lot of their stuff and culture we got in the Karen Travis books recently and earlier with Cult Protocol, yeah. So there was a lot more detail here than I thought. Um, it is really weirdly structured as an actual novel. The only thing I've read of John Shirley's before this is his Bioshock tie-in novel, and there's a lot of similarities between the two, especially that both books really don't have protagonists, which is kind of weird without going into details it starts off at the beginning of the covenant essentially and then pretty much all the threads get dropped for thousands of years until it reaches basically halo 2 and then uh halo 3's time period and some of the characters come back well like basically two other than that, it's entirely different people and an entirely different person you're following around, which is odd. I'm not really sure if there was a better way of doing that from a novel perspective. Yeah, I will say I think um, there are there are a lot of like genuinely really good Halo books that stand alongside you know other non-Halo science fiction books, um, and a lot of those and some of the the series like the Forerunner trilogy. They they stand on their own fairly well. Um, the thing about this is, I don't think a non-Halo reader or non someone who doesn't have an awareness of Halo couldn't pick this up and appreciate it. I think it definitely relies really heavily on nostalgia and your understanding of 
the Covenant and all the stuff that happened during Halo 2 and Halo 3. Yeah, like like uh, Rapture, it spends a lot of time hitting these beats, which will only work for you if you understand, if you've played the games and you know what little side story you're getting. Because they're kind of on the nose, oh, well, this is what was happening here. And unless you have the context for what else is going on in the universe, it doesn't really read. On the plus side, if you are up on your Halo fiction, I mean, most people have played Halo 2, Halo 3, etc. I mean, one of the big faults with, I think you could say a lot of Halo's campaigns, is that they're always empty. You are really, even in Halo Reach, where Bungie tried to expand the scale, you're basically just fighting guys in these empty locations where everyone's trying to kill you and you're trying to kill them. This gave you a nice little peek into what High Charity was like while you were running around as the Master Chief killing everything, which I thought was enjoyable. It's really nice to have sympathetic Prophet characters because I think they kind of got stereotyped as the because the hierarchs are the mustache-twirling bad guys, that all the prophets were mustache-twirling bad guys, and this book especially adds a lot of nuance that I think, especially if you are a casual game player, you would not have about them. That's one thing that I've always wanted to be shown more. Um, Because, I mean, I wrote that article on the prophets a while back, um, trying to show a more sympathetic take on their race, and, you know, the fact that they're, that for all of the the Covenant's history, they've essentially been fighting off extinction. Um, and it's it's certainly nice to see some more sympathetic characters, like you said. I mean, if you in the Bestiarium, they like the the Latin name for the prophets is Treacherous Worm, which you know, if you really think about it, it's kind of uh, not racist, it's kind of speciesist to to label a whole species based on their treacherous nature, even though it's really just the political manipulations of the, the higher ups, you know? So it's, it's good to see that they're getting some more time in the limelight as, as characters, so to speak. Yeah. And along that line, I think something that Travis did well, and I think this book does well is once again, Halo is, I guess, sort of on the, especially in the beginning, once we started getting, look behind these characters such as in um cold protocol they were kind of especially the elites were suffering from kind of klingon syndrome they are honorable warriors and they're all honorable warriors and they've all got this code of conduct and no real humans aren't that homogenous they aren't going to be that homogenous in the future and all these people especially on living on different worlds aren't going to be that homogenous so it's nice to have uh, the characters in this book they have differences of opinion, and even if they are theoretically all honorable warriors, they don't all act the same. They have different motivations, etc. And that's nice to have characters who aren't just playing to a type that we've already understood. It makes them feel like actual people instead of just, oh, this is the stock dastardly prophet who's going to be in opposition to the noble elite, etc., etc. Yes. All right, so do we want to go into... We can sort of walk through it now. Get all spoilery. Do it. Okay. Fire off the spoiler horn. So this starts out, like we said, the first half of the book starts out basically during and shortly after the war between the San Shayum and the Sangale, which forms the Covenant. And the two biggest characters 
are unfortunately also not helping you if you're a casual reader is probably the fact that covenant names are horrible for remembering. Um, but there's Aken Scraben, which is a uh, sort of high prophet. And then there's uh, Usas Usa Zealous, who's basically the, the main elite fighting against the Sanshayum. And one of the interesting things about this uh, little look back into the war is that I don't think we ever had before is we knew that they used the Dreadnought. We didn't know that the uh, Prophets actually had Sentinels, which I thought was an interesting thing. So they actually were using Sentinels and pretty much used them all up, uh, fighting the Elites. And the Elites themselves were... I think a little more here they play as a little more canny than they usually do because they look like they're just charging across expectedly and then the prophets get surprised because they essentially tunnel up from underneath them and very nearly capture them. McKen is pretty impressed by Usa's temerity, etc. And when the Covenant finally forms, he's the person who's still fighting against them. I think there's a couple really interesting things about this first opening sequence. First of all, the Sentinels, like you said, kind of ties back to Halo Wars, because we, if you upgrade the Prophets, they get to the point where they have these little Sentinels following them around, which either that's some sort of intentional homage on 343's part, or just like a happy coincidence. And then it also, I was when I was replaying Halo 2 Anniversary, it struck me how interesting it was that the elites were just perfectly willing to kill sentinels and all the forerunner constructs. And uh, if if they have a history of doing that, it, it makes it a little more understandable why they would have this lack of respect for their gods' machines while they have this reverence for everything else. Mm-hmm. And then I also just found it really interesting, the uh, what was it called? They, they called it the planet of blue and red, or red and blue. Mm-hmm. Um, because it has what was it? It had two suns, which yeah. the planet, and it didn't. It didn't rotate. The planet was permanently locked between one side being completely red with one so- one star, and then on the other side, the other star was casting a blue light. So they said the the conflict was taking place right on the border between the red and the blue light. So just as a visual, I think that's something that would be really cool to see at some point. You know, maybe there's some fan artists out there that might do that, but it. Definitely was a cool image in my head. Mm-hmm. They actually spent a fair amount of time detailing that. I wonder if that that's going to come into play at some point in the future, because it does really come up with an evocative image. That would be cool. Basically, Usa, uh, in the time of the Age of Reconciliation, uh, Usa is basically going around to these various, I believe it's on a mining um, installation. He's trying to recruit people uh, to fight against the Sanshum, and he comes across this really old dude, Kreka, who basically says, oh, well, at one point, I was years ago, I was running around, and I was actually found a foreigner installation, and he says that he can lead them to it. And so Usa gathers up all his followers, and they head to this place, and they find a shield world, uh, which we've encountered a couple of times now in all the Halo games and novels, and they basically go inside, and they find a monitor there, uh, enduring bias who basically allows them to stay on the shield world i think enduring bias is kind of a weird character just because i think he's one of the most interesting in terms of what his motivations are you can kind of hear tim Dadabo doing 
his lines because they've got the same like 343 guilty spark he's got some of the same wandered off talk about things that while people are trying to ask him important questions that sort of stuff towards the end he gets actively hostile to people who aren't the elites i guess he's friendly with so he's kind of gone rogue essentially even though i don't think he's rampant he's just kind of tired of oh well the foreigners set me here and i haven't had anything to do so why not do what i want i think it's also interesting to consider what his relationship to uh, mendicant bias and offensive bias are um, because obviously the naming the nomenclature is similar so my guess is he would have to be a medarch level ancilla which in the fiction we still don't fully understand what that means entirely we know they're ancillas or ais that are on a totally different level but we don't know how they're made or what necessarily makes them so important but the fact that we now have no not two but three of those theoretically even though it's not confirmed the naming kind of does confirm it they they specifically describe him he's got three eyes instead of the one that 343 guilty spark has and i think the only place we've seen that otherwise is for instance in um Halo Origins, Mendicant Bias has the three eyes. Yeah, and then in the Terminal and Anniversary. Yeah, it's interesting because um, when you read Contact Harvest, uh, Mendicant Bias is actually supposed to just look like a regular monitor, but with a teardrop casing instead of a circular casing. He's only supposed to have one eye. So they, they either changed it or there's some sort of story point that has yet to be introduced explaining how we went from the three eyes aboard the Dreadnought to the one uh, in the con- in contact harvest. Oh, yeah, I hadn't even thought about him being a medarch, but that's true. They are all all the the renegade elites are hanging out, but they've been ratted out by one of their kind who leaves and then basically brings back the covenant with him. And the person who ends up uh, leading the fleet to take him out is McCann again. There's there's a nice little bit here where McKen and Usa sort of, they recognize that they are both probably honorable, but that there's really no way of McKen being able to guarantee the safety of Usa's people if he surrenders. And so that this there's this kind of at this impasse. And so Usa decides to essentially, quote unquote, blow up the shield world. But it's actually a mechanism set up by enduring bias that he's always wanted to try. And so while everyone thinks... McKen kind of says, well, it looks like he's dead. I'm not going to investigate too heavily. Uh, and he heads back saying that the Usans are dead. What's actually happened is the entire shield word is broken into sections and a few of the sections are left habitable. And so that's where the Usans are. This was, they kind of make the point, and I guess this is where you can say why there's a AI of enduring biases caliber here is because this is a shield world we haven't seen before. And while we've seen the ones that are just a habitable interior and the ones that can sort of like Trevelyan, uh, which is basically there's a slip space uh, portal inside the shield world. This one does something we haven't seen before. It breaks apart, which I thought was interesting, I guess, in case Flood got inside, you could essentially break it apart and then so you learn later, reform it. Do you think that this is something we're going to see later on in some other media? I'm not sure if the shield world itself is going to show up again but big spoiler here essentially by the end of the novel or i forget was it at the end of the section or the end of the novel that we find out what it forms oh end of the end of the novel yeah so at the end of the novel we find out that the shield world breaks apart and essentially forms a non-halo halo ring one small part of the section reforms 
I believe, to create a complete ring that's similar to the Halo rings, but not part of the uh, array, and without the capability of destroying sentient life, obviously. And that's that's something that's not going to get tossed in lightly, I don't think, that we've got essentially another halo ring that feels like something that's going to show up again whether it's going to be in future covenant novels or in the games or the, even in escalation i don't know but uh that was the big reveal that i think is going to come into play it's also interesting to note that they say this uh what is it the refuge is what they call it was the last shield world ever built and we know from the expanded fiction that Requiem was the first shield world ever built. And they're very similar in description. They both have these kind of spires hanging down from the ceiling, butting up against the planet on the inside. So I, I found it interesting that the first shield world constructed and the last shield world constructed were so similar, and yet they were making a bigger deal out of this last one just because of its ability to break apart and reform a halo ring. Mm-hmm. I think you're absolutely and utterly wrong about the big reveal being this 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 clobbered together fake halo it's it's it, it's a joke of an installation for folks like it's it's a fake circle it's 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 not halo it's a fake wannabe pieced together ring worlded it's, it's, it's literally just a ring world there's nothing to indicate it's a weapon well i don't think i think it's just a nice tie into what we learn in uh the greg bear novels that the halos can like, and actually what's tying into Nightfall is that the Halos have some level of redundancy, so the bigger ones are capable of breaking off sections and reforming into something small. So I think that if you look at the progression of Forerunner technology, you can say, well, they built the Halos, they built the Shield Worlds, and then this model of Shield World, they were taking what they learned from the Halos and essentially building into a contingency plan for the Shield World where it could break open and reform the same way. Really, if you broke apart a sphere, the curvature is the curvature. You're not going to be able to recreate a smaller version of it. So, from that respect, it kind of has to turn into a ring. The same, yeah, same time. It's just, it's just, it's literally just a ring world at this point. Not thing. You, you can live on it. You can deal or whatever, but it's not going to turn into a, a weapon of galactic mass destruction because it has no control. Like the arc, you know, it's, it's, it's. There's not going to be its halo ring suddenly on the scene. You know, that that's. I'm honestly sick of these big giant things. Um, these literally, these are these are massive story points uh, introduced into these books. Uh, for example, the uh, the traveling base or or Onyx used to be these big things that are just sitting there in the universe uses background noise, and and, and the reality is these are these are assets that would be even more important that single halo ring would be you know what i mean to to anyone that had control of them and by the way the elites having their own fake halo ring the the party on essentially with these old elites from this older culture and all this stuff that would make no significant shock waves like into into the current status quo especially since we have the arbiter and his mysterious unseen enemies who are all against him which and and Sang- well, is what fractured down the middle. What we're supposed to be told the the, the covenant still hanging around, giving them grief. Would would the discovery of these guys and these this fake Halo ring? Would that not be big shit news? Well, I don't think. Correct me if I'm wrong, but we don't know exactly what point 
the end of Broken Circle takes place in, do we? We know it's got to be sometime after Halo 3 because they know that the uh, prophets have fallen, but we don't know if this is before Halo 4, etc., or shortly after. That's that's nitpicking. That's nitpicking, but you know what I mean? Like the, the thing is, after Halo 3, Arbiter's in a shit situation, the elites are split down the middle. That's, that's, that's it, you know? So that's the world that this new Halo ring and this entire brand new population have just sort of sprung into. And that's why I'm like, well, come on. Well, that, that would have a significantly bigger impact than, than the nothing it shows you in the novel, essentially. You know, that's a big game changer. Well, yeah, I mean, like, don't... don't I have little faith. Use the, I'm using the former Onyx installation as a brilliant example. Oh, wow, they, they put Joe Badam on there for a couple of, couple of minutes and one novel. Well, hey, that's influential. The thing is, they could still come up in future fiction. Like, it takes time to work those things into productions. Oh, I can't wait until it's a sentence and a paragraph in some book in the future. I can't wait. I'll, I'll, I'll live for that day. Give them some credit. It'll be in a sentence, in a paragraph, in a back-end terminal behind some creek. <laughs> well, I mean, that's the thing. It's a, it's a big, giant universe. And, and yet they treat it... Yeah, it's a big, giant universe, I agree. Yet they only focus on some small... It's they, Well, as, as soon as they start focusing on other stuff, we get... We got Recream in Halo 4, right? We got an entire planet, full-water planet in Halo 4. And yet they fucked that into the sun. You should be entirely behind that, because that solves the issue of you complaining that they don't bring this stuff up again. If it's gone in the sun, then it can't be brought up again. Anyhow, the other part of the, I guess, the old uh, half of this book um, that was really interesting was the details. Um, McKen basically gets sent um, back to the original Prophet homeworld essentially on a stealth mission to bring back uh, some women because the Sanshum need women. They're essentially, even at this early point in history before their home world's been destroyed, they're already sort of facing genetic stagnation. Um, and they've got a role of celibates for people who are not allowed to breed because it could cause serious issues for them. And this is the only time we've ever actually seen the uh, stoic Sanshum on their world, and what's interesting is that, and since they essentially abhor using foreigner technology, since it's their gods, uh, they've become really adept at genetics, and so they end up attacking this convoy that's trying to lead the women back to high charity with the forest itself, which I thought was a really cool idea that we haven't really seen before in Halo. All all I could think about when when that was happening was how how do they not get friction burn riding on those things because <laughs> i mean it's not like it's not like the plants are picking up and carrying with them they're literally being slid across the surface of these plants well That's it's it's weird. the cowboy question saddle sores and all that it was a weird image i think it was really cool that they introduced this kind of new, very alien technology. It's something that they could definitely expand on in the future. Obviously, we know the Stoics... Well, we know that Janjir Kwam was completely destroyed through stellar collapse, which I was very disappointed that that wasn't explored in the novel. I was hoping to... I think there's a big plot point there with what the reformists back on High Charity knew and allowed to happen as they watched their homeworld burn. But, uh, it, you know, there's, there's a possibility that the Stoics could have left at some point, could have decided to research Forerunner technology, or could have used their genetic ma manipulation, their genetic technology to build 
ships that let them leave. Or or they just naturally progressed without using the foreigner stuff because they note that essentially kind of sounds like they're in 20th century technology insofar as they've got missiles that can hit stuff in orbit and they've got ballistic weapons. Yeah, they've got ballistic weapons. They've sort of got fighter craft. So they might have progressed naturally without even resorting to using the foreigner stuff. But then they've also got all that genetic stuff to kind of enhance it. So I think if at some point we find out that the Stoics actually did leave their homeworld before it was burned up, that essentially gives us two factions of prophets of Sanchium that are out there. We've got the Covenant prophets and then the Stoics who have this really alien uh, gene-working technology, which would be really cool to see come up again and, and see explored a little bit more. Like, I'd love to see what their society looks like with all of this genetic stuff floating around. Like, what does it look like to, to walk down a stoic street? What sort of weird things would you see, you know? Splicers. Yeah, I mean, John Shirley, right? Yeah, that's, that's kind of what I was talking about. There's, there's a whole lot of, of kind of similarities, which makes me interested to read Shirley's other stuff, see if it's substantially different, or if he's got any original stuff that's a lot different. What else has he written? Uh, stuff I've never heard of. <laughs> so I'm not sure. I'd have to actually read it. Yeah, and in terms of sort of other stuff that happens in this old section, the only other thing, unless you guys have something you want to point out, on that I thought was interesting was that also on the Prophet's world, they find a luminary. And I think this is tying into the uh, Halo 2 terminals. This is essentially the same thing that the Covenant eventually find again, or I don't think it's the same one, but they find another one that leads them to the Ark and to Earth by extension. They could have done that years and years ago, except uh, they get hit by a Stoic missile when they're leaving, and uh, McKen saves one of the Sanchayum instead of the Luminary in it ends up falling out of the ship and burning up. Imagine what would have happened if they had discovered the halos before Master Chief was around to uh, blow them up. Nothing. Because <laughs> everyone would be dead. Actually, they couldn't activate the... Oh, they couldn't activate them. So they, they'd just be sitting there going, waiting for nothing. <laughs> they would have been sitting around. They would have made uh, Jewel and Damas wait around Requiem. Look like <laughs> a brief 30-second detour. Although chances are, that whenever they discovered humanity, they probably would kidnap someone and forced a great journey to begin. Or you kind of assume that they would have just wiped out the galaxy because it would have been overrun by flood, because I imagine they would have been stupid and might have opened it up before. That's a good point. That's mm. a good point. They probably would have released the floods, and then funny times happens. Yeah, I like that. It's, That's... it's interesting to... Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of scenarios in Halo that make you wonder... What if this had played out differently? It's almost like part of me almost wants to have some sort of fiction exploring those what ifs, but then I know we'll just get too far into like comic book territory with alternate realities and stuff. But oh, I but think did you ever did you ever see the Marvel What If series? Oh yeah, those are great. I love those. Like, those are fantastic one offs. So they, they don't tie into anything. They just hey, what if you know? I would love a string, maybe even a book. Well, short stories, just uh, just a couple of what ifs. It wouldn't uh, make the Halo universe all kind of messy and chaotic, like comic book series or a lot of Star Trek. Um, but it would still allow people to explore those ideas, which I think are worth exploring. So the second half 
takes place basically like 3300, 3400 years later. And this is basically the part that's taking place during Halo 2. Once again, all the old characters are pretty much gone at this point, and instead we're following around another San Shayum, uh, Zo, uh, the Prophet of Clarity, who's basically a historian. And he's found McKen's testimony, basically, about fighting the Usan uh, elites. And it also, some of the stuff there, which is, this is one of the parts where I thought it was kind of, hey, plot point C, just about uh, sharing doubts about the great journey. And unlike uh, most of the prophets that we've ever seen, uh, he's, Zo is actually, has good relations with a lot of Sangheili. And he is actually spying on the Prophet of Truth and thinks that something's going to go down uh, because the Brutes are ascendant. And there's a couple of interesting things here. One of them was that it sort of changes, I don't know if it changes, but it sort of shades Truth's motivations a little bit too because here, if you were just going to read this book, you would kind of assume that Truth alone was behind um, masterminding having the brutes take over um, because he's kind of leaving uh, the prophet of mercy out of it but some of the background details we've gotten before said that regret was actually really distrustful of elites and mercy really did not like them either so actually truth is one of the ones that would be less likely to plot everything and i'm not sure if this just comes down to the issues that truth has had as a character entirely he's kind of been mishmashed and represented differently or um i actually thought that that point about regret was a canonical error because regret has always historically been um very close to the elites i mean halo wars he goes out he's mentioned as having joined the elites on the battlefield and and adopted some of their more aggressive mannerisms well but at the same time they say that they definitely say he spends a lot of time with elites but they also say that he in Contact Harvest, he's the one who brings in the Brutes initially to deal with the issue because he knows the elites can't be trusted. It would upset the balance of power with the reliquary they think they've found. And then in, once again, going back to Cold Protocol, which is, this is basically <laughs> the first time in a really long time, actually, that the Cold Protocol has been relevant, which is interesting. But he's also really against the elites there, and it's Truth who basically promotes... Uh, the Arbiter to, I don't think he becomes Fleetmaster at that point, but he basically gets sent on his way to becoming the character, the Supreme Commander that we end up seeing in Halo 2. See, in Old Protocol, I always thought that was a typo, and they just mixed up the, the Prophet's names. That's entirely possible. It's interesting that they would never have changed it, though. Well, it, I mean, like you said, it's the first time the novel's been relevant in a long time. If people aren't noticing and complaining about it... And it then it just, to me, it seems like another thing where we really need to have a book or something from Truth's perspective. Because I think there's room for all this stuff to be, to make sense. It just relies so much on understanding what's driving Truth. And we've never really gotten anything about that. Yeah, there's certainly a lot of interesting character points to be explored in Halo 3. I mean, we know in Contact Harvest, he's more i mean they they more or less are aware of what the halos do by the time we get to halo 3 so why would truth still be trying to activate them all those sort of questions would be great to find out find answers to and actually this book kind of touches on it which is which has always been one of the the strange 
And you can argue it's simply gameplay, but one of the strange things is, from a practical standpoint, if truth doesn't instigate the Civil War, basically the Halo gets fired. Because <laughs> they would have had the Index and everyone's happy, and there's no Arbiter going to stop them from activating the Halo. They've already captured the humans, etc. Meanwhile, if Truth and the other Hierarchs know that activating the Halo is a bad idea, then why would they send Tartarus to do it? Because then they would be dead far before they could excavate the Ark and get out of there to safety. So it's one of those things I think it depends entirely on the Prophet's understanding that, obviously they understand that some things about the Great Journey are false, but they still believe in the the divine ascension portion of it and you just have to chalk up truth going through with his dastardly plans even when theoretically everyone should be going <laughs> to to covenant heaven as i guess extreme spite i always thought about it as just kind of insanity like he had kind of been responsible for more or less what he would have seen as the death of his race because high charity was taken over and most of the prophets would have been killed off we know now that enough of them survived but even just from his perspective, uh, I mean, everything his life was founded on just went to sh It's like his last chance was the, the slim margin that there actually might be some truth to the great journey. So he just committed the rest of his energy to that. Hmm. Actually, that's a, another thing that I don't think we'd ever gotten before is that they mention, this is the first time I think we've ever heard in the covenant religion, there's an uber god. Basically that the foreigners are gods to them, but they're not essentially the god. There's something above them. I guess it's not necessarily codified, but it's a theological point, I should say. But if the foreigners were like avatars of God, then who ultimately was that god? Was there not some over-god that all must submit to? There must be. And perhaps the end of the Great Journey was a glorious encounter with that ultimate deity. And it does, it does kind of going throughout this entire thing, and it's one of the things that McKenna and Zoe both pick on. Um, is the idea that even at the time, even throughout Covenant history, essentially, the people who were learning about the, the relics and stuff, they weren't entirely, it's one of those things, they weren't willfully ignorant, they were just focused on the wrong things. They point out, like, well, there's this divine wind or whatever, and that kind of sounds like a weapon, if you read it this way, uh, which I thought was an interesting, sort of an interesting tacit understanding that, yeah, it's kind of weird that they pulled apart all these relics and didn't really understand it but it makes sense when you consider that they kind of just weren't asking the right questions the entire time which is brought up to a t in uh one of the anniversary terminals mm -hmm. so zoe sort of learns from truth that some stuff's going to go down and he warns the elites who do an incredibly bad job of doing anything about it here we finally see um, what happens to the counselors when they get killed by brutes. It's something that got referenced in Halo 2, and we saw like essentially the aftermath of it, which is interesting. And then we get a wonderful grisly scene of Zoe essentially gets captured and brought to where some of the elites on high charity are getting tortured through the novel use of essentially gravity generation you get pulped by extremely high gravity which was pretty gnarly that was definitely one of the darker moments in a halo story mm -hmm. i mean there's some dark stuff in halo but that was that was yeah i mean it's seeing that would probably be particularly bad but yeah we're the one they we're the one they encounter that in the cutscene <laughs> you ooh, blur cutscenes the pulping 
gravity thing. <laughs> Maybe it's an extra they release later on. And Zoe is actually going to go off to meet the same fate, but he's rescued by some of his elite allies. And they're sort of, they basically fight through the under levels of high charity while the civil war starts breaking out around them. And they basically kick off shortly before the flood start wiping everything out and taking over. So they're basically leaving about the same time or even slightly before uh, the chief does, which is interesting. And not knowing what to do, they essentially sort of drift around until Zoe realizes, oh, hey, I've heard this story of the Usans. And so when they, they discover, they sort of come across the asteroid belt, which was blacked out, the system was blacked out by the Covenant. They explore it and eventually find that yes, the Usans are still there, falling apart into a state of civil war and decay too. And this was another section which was really a whole lot like <laughs> Bioshock again, because they describe how without anyone to really upkeep, the refuge is sort of falling apart. In some places, the gravity has totally failed on these little sections of the former shield world splayed out. And some of the elites have gone crazy. Um, for an unknown reason, they've got some sickness, uh, the blood sickness, uh, which basically makes them go crazy, and a civil war breaks out, and it's sort of raging when uh, Zoe and these renegade elites come across them. I think it's interesting that we've got so many different like sicknesses in Halo now. There's uh, obviously the element that they they used at the fir- in the first episode of Nightfall, and then we had Oni trying to engineer these sicknesses to introduce into the elite population of Sangalios. And now we've got the blood sickness. It's like Which is actually a total a total bit of Star Trek because it turns out the the source of the blood sickness is tainted replicators essentially. Yeah. That sounds like a Star Trek episode. Yeah, which which was that was an episode of Voyager, I think. I haven't gotten there yet. Well, you'll you'll know it. It's it's definitely one of those, which isn't bad, and it it's one of those things that, I mean, it's entirely aside to to Halo, but yeah, that seems like a pretty big issue that would be kind of endemic to those sorts of technologies. Like it can make anything. I swear, if uh, the Arbiter and Master Chief both evolve into lizards and then mate, I'm done. <laughs> Spoilers. He hasn't gotten to it yet. I don't know which characters you're talking about. You're so. going to have an enjoyable episode. I think that's second season, or is it first season? The Voyager? Yeah. Oh, I scrubbed that from my memory. I, I don't care where it appears in Voyager. I, it, oh, God. For people who are interested, I'll put a link in the show notes. I think it's an episode of Star Trek that's so bad it's good. Um, <laughs> You'll know. It'll be a while before I get to Voyager anyway. I'm plodding through Deep Space Nine. Yeah, so basically the... Um, Thanks to the Zoe and the other elites coming along, everything gets solved in uh, the refuge. They kill the crazed elites, uh, and the structure reforms itself into the ring. We get uh, also, on a side note, we get another Haragok. Doesn't get as much time as the Haragok in the Karen Travis trilogy, but we get floats near ceiling. He's a nice, agreeable guy, and he actually repairs Enduring Bias. So, along with the non-Halo ring world that we get in this, the other possible shoe uh, in terms of technology is that there could be this Medarch level AI. Uh, I, I don't like those jovial, sort of happy-go-lucky names that the... Uh, the Hurricane have? 
the Herodoc. I'm expecting one to go farts like butter or something like that. They're just so, they're just so silly. You know, it's just I don't like that sort of. I, I love the engineers. I think they're great. I, uh, they're a bit too, they're a bit too DSX machina. You know I mean, they're a bit too. Yeah, here comes the thing that will fix everything. Well, that that's yeah. what makes them so interesting in the universe is they're being handled properly according to that as well. It's not like they're they're always just chucked in to fix the plot, you know. Within the universe, they have a very specific place, and they're sought after really heavily. They become almost a point of... These really innocent creatures become a point of conflict because people are trying so heavily to control them. The Hurricock Wars, where are they? I don't know. It's, it seems that there's such an amazing asset, such a priceless asset, not being used. Yeah? Sorry, in the background. Well, and one of the interesting, oh no, that's the end of the book, but I've got some stray points that are worth bringing up. And one of them is that they mention that the Hurragok are essentially drawn to Forerunner technology. It essentially speaks to them and says, hey, I'm over here. Fix me, please. <laughs> Which I thought was interesting. It sort of kind of goes into, still makes them kind of, engineers are, like you say, they kind of got the happy-go-lucky names and they aren't really perturbed by a whole lot. And it kind of makes them, you feel kind of bad for them too at the same time because they kind of got this mentally damaged, simple-minded, happy-go-lucky thing, but they are they really are just tools to be used. Yeah, yeah. So I, I can't imagine a Herakok having a personality beyond that of a simple child. Yeah, I mean, basically the, the most you get is in Contact Harvest, and there, once again, it's, um, it's lighter than some, right? Yeah. It's sort of a still got a sort of simple-minded I want everyone to be happy and this will make people happy kind of thing that only sort of changes at the very end. So it, I, I guess they really they really can have their own personalities, but they're essentially, I mean, they're, they're genetically designed, they're built to sort of not. So it's interesting when they essentially kind of can, on rare occasion, sort of break free from their programming in a way. I, I like them, though. It's, it's one of the things that you know is going to be consistent in the Halo universe. Like, if, if an engineer shows up, you know, that's happy little innocent fellow who's going to help people, and it's, it's good to have that consistency. It's like you were saying with the elites. Not all elites are going to have this honorary society, but, you know, you, it actually works and makes sense that all engineers would be, to a certain degree, helpful and cheerful and everything. Well, in the, in the stray uh, things I had written down along that lines, we get elite sports for the first time. Uh, the Usans have the float fight, which is basically kind of like Ender's Game. Yes, it was the battle room. The battle, yeah, the battle room with like a little bit of like Tron fighting and stuff, where they kind of fling themselves around in the zero G environment and beat each other up and occasionally kill each other uh, as a way to keep keep up the the warrior spirit. And even when they can't really fight, they don't really have an enemy to fight outside of themselves. Some other things that I had written down as interesting little tidbits. Um, they mentioned that young prophets look a lot more like humans, which was an interesting little line. So apparently they, they sort of, the serpentine necks and stuff is something that they sort of grow into. Yeah, I like that. I think that's cool. And they also have, uh, they also have uh, Za, Zo kind of mentions as an aside, looking at the brutes that they kind of look like primitive humans, which is a nice little nod to the fact that they're, they're very ape-like. 
Yeah, I like that the prophets have this, um, yeah, I guess it's just a mark of maturity with the elongating neck and, and becoming more inhuman. Partially because some of the artwork submitted for visualizing the Halo universe a while back showed prophet warriors with short necks, and that actually makes it more accurate. So I, I like that. That was, um, that was Garrett, TD Spiral's um, artwork. And we'll throw a link in the show notes. But yeah, they kind of can see where those would uh, fit. Yeah, and then, um, oh, it, it makes me wonder if those new aliens that showed up in Escalation might actually be Prophets. I think it's it's very unlikely, but they still, they have only three fingers, just like Prophets. They've got the same skin tone. I don't, I don't think that is the case, but I suppose it's a possibility given the art style of Escalation. Or that they were sort of like an offshoot race at some point, or maybe like even a lost race of them. Something, yeah. Well, they could have just been young ones. Mm-hmm. Um, some other things I had down. Uh, we got an interesting thing that the hierarchs existed before the Covenant, the Prophet hierarchs, and that they could essentially retire. Like, so they, it's kind of a lot like Catholic popes, where it's usually for life, but you can uh, retire and come back. Anything else you want to say about Broken Circle? I guess I should say that I wrote down in my notes about a third or half of the way through that I thought it had one of the best uses of working in the the book's title and then by the end I wrote down that they really drove that title into the ground because <laughs> there's like three or four mentions of broken circle broken circle broken circle at the end which kind of took the sheen off it and I will I will counter again here that the title could have been created after it was written and they went through and saw those pulled it out and called it the title well then they should really have it's- gone back and and toned that down a little bit. <laughs> Ultimately, I think it's a, a Halo book worth reading, uh, especially if you're a Halo fan. I don't think it, that it was objectionable, and there's a lot of interesting stuff in it. I don't think it's worth reading if you're not really a Halo fan. It's, uh, it's a book for yeah, Halo fans. Definitely. And if you're not a Halo fan, you're going to be confused and lost. You'll get nothing out of it in a while, I think, you know? Alright, so anything else to say, then? No, I can't think of anything else. Okay, Uh, well, we'll get to the Halo 2 anniversary stuff and terminals later. Um, But thanks for listening to the Ford Unto Dawn podcast. Uh, You can subscribe via iTunes. You can check out the show notes, uh, links and such at fordontodawn.com. You can leave a comment there or join our forums at assembly.fordontodawn.com. Thanks for listening and take care.